Welcome to the 391st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Cassie Alexander back to COVID Calls. She's the author of Year of the Nurse, a 2020 COVID-19 pandemic memoir. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 20th, 2021, there are 5 million 359,427 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID, Cardiff mom trains to become nurse after husband's death. This was written by Nicola Smith and appeared in BBC News 16th of November, 2021. Rachel Ohene Eje's husband, Eric, age 46, died in April of 2021 after seven weeks in intensive care at University Hospital of Wales, Cardiff. Rachel said a consultant held her hand as she said goodbye to her husband. Now she started studying GCSE maths and English again on the road to her new career in nursing. Rachel said her children enjoy looking at old videos and photos of their father and the happy memories helped them to remember him in a positive way after he was in hospital for so long. Rachel from Cardiff left school without passing GCSE maths and English after she struggled with shyness and asking for help, but said Eric helped build up her confidence. She said, anything I wanted to do, he'd say, you can do it. He was so, so positive. I went from being a shy girl who'd walk with her head down to being able to speak for myself, and that was because of the way he made me. Eric tested positive for COVID in February this year and was admitted to UHW in Cardiff, but died almost two months later. I've got nothing but praise for every single member of staff who took the time to call me to give me the information I asked for or needed, she said. They were just amazing. The first time since Eric's death, Rachel has spoken to Dr. Nick Stollard, the consultant who held her hand as she went to her husband's bedside for the final time. She told him, I don't know if you realize, but your presence and your compassion and everything you and your staff did for myself and Eric, I was so amazingly grateful to you all. The way you spoke to me, how you held my hand. It meant so much to me and helped me with my grieving. Because of everything you all did, I've decided to start college, and so I'm doing a pre-access to nursing course. I'd like to give back to families what you did for us. Dr. Stallard told her you've made an amazing decision to go into nursing. That's fantastic news. I'm sure once you've finished your degree, we'd welcome you with open arms. 
I'm sure if Eric was here, he would be clapping his hands at you making that decision. Rachel started her courses in math and English in September and hopes to one day work in intensive care. The headline is Cardiff Mom Trains to Become Nurse After Husband's Death. Okay, let's turn to the conversation, and I'm really delighted to bring Cassie Alexander back to COVID calls. Let me introduce her to you. Cassie Alexander is a registered nurse 14 years in burn critical care support and ICU. She's also a paranormal romance author. Her most recent book is Year of the Nurse, a 2020 COVID-19 pandemic memoir about her experiences working in a COVID ward in 2020. Cassie Alexander, welcome back to COVID Calls. Hey, Scott. It's super good to be here. Thank you for having me. I can't believe you've done 391 of these. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's just become like a daily practice. Honestly, quite selfishly, it keeps me sane. Yeah, I, I oh gosh, I hear that. But yeah, yeah. I, I can't even believe we're at the end of 2021. And we're still like, here doing this. I'm sure everyone expresses the same disbelief, but it still is mind boggling that we're still in the middle of COVID, no matter what we do, it seems. Well, and we're going to come at that in lots of different ways. But I since you started with that, you know, I guess people have, nobody really knows how to talk about living in a disaster for two years. But I I don't know if you've noticed this, but for me, this last week, everyone I've talked to has expressed like, this feels different again, somehow, like some new phase of it, maybe it's some sort of shared mental, um, you know, ex experience. It's related to Omicron and case rates, but somehow it seems to go beyond that. I don't know if you're seeing that too. I, I feel like it's just the general level of exhaustion is so heavy. Plus the fact that we're doing this, like, you know, at least 2020 was just like, part of a year, but now we've been doing this for a whole other year. There doesn't seem to be an end in sight um, because of, you know, the actions of fellow countrymen and things like that. And yeah, it's just super heavy. You know, I, I think traditionally, like people get to the New Year's, new times, new resolutions. And we were all, I think the thing actually, let me back up, Scott, is that when 2021 came around, we had just gotten the vaccines, right? At the like very end of 2020, I think I got my first shot as a healthcare worker, like December 18th or something of 2020. And we were all like, oh, here comes 2021, it has got to be better. And then it's actually been like even or noticeably worse for so many people that we're all really hesitant to go into 2022 because we have no guarantees, you know? So that that's what I think that it is. I think you're, I think that's, makes a lot of sense and and that that um vaccine enthusiasm for those who shared it uh was you're right late 2020 and then i was looking back at so i'm in south korea but i had made travel plans starting in june and july and there was mm -hmm. this like wave of excitement in the united states and that meant people coming from the u.s abroad and then the chance that i might travel in other places I've stopped making any travel plans whatsoever. I mean, I, you know, I've scratched all that off. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember thinking because we were all so naive back then, especially as healthcare workers. Um, sorry, my cats are being destructive. Um, I'm so sorry, Scott, but let me toss one of my cats out because she's being a jerk. You're in trouble, mister. You gotta go. I thought they would behave, but they didn't. I apologize so much. 
Um, we were reminiscing at work because, you know, late December is when we all got our vaccines and we just naively assumed and hoped that the end of things was in sight, you know, because we couldn't imagine a world in which people didn't want to take the vaccine, especially seeing what we had seen. And because all of us were early adopters of the vaccine, it didn't make sense for anybody to not want to take it, you know, when we'd been working with COVID patients at the hospital. And yeah, it's weird. It's just a really weird vibe, but we were all reminiscing about that this past weekend at work because this is the same time that we had the vaccine last year and like, we're still treading water. So um, just one piece of housekeeping I should do at the top, and I had you on July 6th, but I want to ask you the same question I asked it then, which is just where are you calling from and, and how are oh, things yeah. looking there? Hey, so um, I live in Oakland. Um, I work in a hospital in the Bay Area. I'm in an ICU. We actually, um, when I left, we had, I think, like 12 COVID patients housewide, which isn't that bad. When we were really bad last year, we got up to like 40 but it, we can just see it kind of creeping up and up. And the thing is, is too, is, you know, you see those COVID patients on the other floor, but when you're in the ICU, you know that you're going to be where they end up, like, you know. And then sometimes you get the temptation where you scan the board and you're like, oh, you're in your 30s and your 40s and you have COVID. That means that you're unvaccinated, basically, so that mm -hmm. we're almost guaranteed an ICU trip, it feels like, so... So the numbers I was looking at, you know, for California, um, You're still much better than so many other places. I cannot complain. Yeah, I want to be honest about that. I know there's like Ohio's getting slaughtered right now. They just brought in the National Guard to help with their hospitals. Right. There's so many more places who are worse off. Have the numbers been increasing there in California or is it a different pandemic story than what you're describing like Ohio, for example? I, I think the good thing about the Bay Area is our vaccination rate is very high. Um, like in San Francisco, you have to show proof of vaccination to get indoors for literally anything. And then um, everybody's relatively good about masking, even outdoors. So I think we're just kind of taking care of each other in a way that, unfortunately, not all parts of our state are, or maybe not all the rest of the states in the United States are. So, so a lot of things have happened. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot has happened since we since we last talked for you i mean your book was just out then mm -hmm. and it's gotten a very well deserved it's gotten a lot of attention and in fact um ed young who i had on COVID calls last year and hope to have him early next year again he um wrote one of his extraordinary pieces and i'm, I'm just going to quote a couple lines from it because um you're in the lead uh he talks about you um, Which praise to be <laughs> well, and and it's really, uh, but he, well, let me just read it because it's really you come through it really strongly um, in the in a great way. He he says last December at the height of the winter surge, she, which is you, Cassie Alexander, cared for a patient who had caught the coronavirus after being pressured into the Thanksgiving dinner. The lungs were so ruined that only a hand pumped ventilation bag could supply enough oxygen. Alexander squeezed the bag every two seconds for 40 minutes straight to give the family time to say goodbye. Her hands cramped and blistered as the family screamed and prayed when one of them said that a miracle might happen. Alexander found herself thinking, I am the miracle. I'm the only person keeping your loved one alive. So that's the lead of this piece that Ed Young published in November 16th's um, issue of The Atlantic. Um, what was it like to, to talk to Ed and to, to be a source for this piece? I mean, I think it thrust, hopefully thrust your work and, and um, your narrative into the limelight. 
it, it did get my book some, some nice attention, but more importantly than getting my book attention, I think that it helped explain how come nurses are so exhausted and how we're all mentally traumatized from the work that we've been having to do this whole time. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, personally talking to Ed Young was kind of a fangirl moment because he's been so influential and instrumental in explaining COVID to the masses with his work in the Atlantic and his Pulitzer Prize for his COVID journalism was extremely well-deserved. Um, but actually talking to him about things, um, I think I cried on the phone with him twice. And it was <laughs> in hindsight, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm way too much. But I wanted him to understand what it felt like to be there living those moments. And even though I've had a lot of therapy to help me mentally recover from the experiences that I went through, doesn't mean that they still don't touch me. So um yeah, I just I just wanted to be as honest as possible with him because I I wanted through him for people to understand what it's like to be a nurse in America today. And the the honest truth is that it's not it's not super great. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that because when you're when you're writing, and and you know when you wrote, you're the nurse. When you're in control of the narrative, it's a and it's a complicated narrative in lots of great ways. And people should read it if you haven't read the book. But because it's got blog posts, it's your it's got social media feed, it's got diary entries, and then it's got narration. And you're operating at a lot of different levels. But when you talk to a journalist, even one as as honest and and capable as Ed Young, it's there's a vulnerability there, isn't there? Oh, oh, absolutely. And, um, but I trusted him because, you know, I, I, I know of him and his work and stuff. And, and I mean, I admit in the book that Cassie Alexander is actually a pseudonym. And I, I told him my real name, because if I'm going to get outed professionally, if it happens with Ed Young, well, then so be it. But they were able to, you know, use my name anonymously, which was nice or pseudonymously. So just to come back to that, um, that story that he that he told, um, you know, reflecting back on that moment so, and talking about it with him, how, how does it feel to, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, you're not telling it. It's not a set piece, but at this point, it's a complete story. It's, it's one of those things, you know, that people in, in the future will pull and they'll say, well, what was 2021 like? What was 2020 like? They'll pull back and that'll be one of those I guarantee you a historian 20 years from now is going to use that. That's, that's great. That's also daunting though. You know, I, I mean, I, I know from my fiction writing, you, you can't sit around and think about posterity, right? Because you have no control over what happens in the future. And to think you do um, as a writer is impossibly naive, you know, like there's great books that flop every year, fiction books and probably nonfiction books as well. And then there's books that, um, maybe don't deserve to succeed, but they strike some moment in the zeitgeist and they get pulled up by the waves. So, um, so all I endeavored to do in that book was just be as honest as possible because that's what I needed to like kind of in, uh, do an incision and drainage on the wound in my, in my soul, my brain basically to kind of get out everything that was in there that was poisoning me. And so that moment in particular, the reason I spoke with him about it is because the type of therapy that I did to help recover for people who haven't read my book, I actually, um, in April of this past year, I experienced suicidal ideation kind of at work. And I, um, started crying. I basically told my best friends, it's ironic that I'm at work trying to keep people alive when I want to die. And so my, I told my best friends, my best friends called my husband. I came home from work and I cried for three weeks and I got a lot of therapy. 
And my therapist luckily was able to do EMDR therapy with me, which is the type of therapy they do for combat vets. And um, you kind of slowly desensitize yourself to the worst moments that you had. And so that was like, when she was all, okay, let's go there. What moment do you want to get rid of? I was like, it is this one because that's, that's the one that causes me the most pain in my heart when I felt the most futile and like I could do the least. And that's when we talked last in July, you had, you weren't finished with therapy, I guess, but you weren't working at that time. No, but you were, you were thinking about it. I mean, you were preparing and thinking about heading back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've actually been back at work for, uh, since the beginning of November now. Okay. So yeah. What did you do to prepare yourself to go back? <laughs> I prayed. <laughs> I prayed and I took benzos. Um, uh, I was joking with a friend at work the other day that like the three A's of being a nurse don't, none of your listeners should be listening to me right now. Um, they're like a leave at a van and Ambien. But, um, uh, I was very nervous and I told my husband, I may not be able to do this, but I, I went to, I, and that's, first I was nervous because I was embarrassed to have had a mental health condition because that's like, you know, just something that not everybody is nice about, but I also knew that I suck at lying. And so I decided that I was just going to be bluntly honest with everybody at work when they were like, where were you? I'd be like, I had PTSD, you know? And um, everybody was really nice to me and they all understood. And, and in hindsight, I should have known that they would understand because every nurse in America has PTSD right now, right? We're all in the same pot of boiling water. We've, we're all parboiled at this point. So, um, and, and what happened then, Scott, which, which makes me sad, but also heartens me is that a lot of my coworkers came to me and they're like, I also have these feelings. What do I do with them? How can I get help? Um, how did things work for you? That sort of thing. And so um, it's one of the reasons why I've been talking so much about my experiences is kind of remove some of the stigma around mental health issues in nursing, because even before COVID, um, female nurses had a twice as high suicide rate as the normal female population in America. And that was pre-COVID. Nobody's done the math since then. So, um, so I feel like there was vast untreated mental health in the profession prior to COVID. And I know that COVID hasn't helped it. And I want as many people to know that they can, that hopefully the help is available for them and they should be reaching it for it. Right? Like, you know, becoming an alcoholic or going home and like yelling at their kids or like being haunted by nightmares or being irrationally angry at small things that you can't control, you know, just all these sorts of things. That I just want to follow up on that cultural for that. So like go back to your training as a nurse. Is, was there, I mean, what was it like at that time? It was like a sort of a mandatory, mandatory segment offering this kind of like, be sure to reach out for help if you need it, or is it more? Oh, gosh, that no, we all like, that's, that's the, that's the shitty thing about nursing, right? Is that um, <laughs> we're trained to be tough and we're trained to take pride in how tough we are to an insane and foolish degree. And because of that, we don't want to admit that we're hurting and, and our job requires that of us, mind you. You know, you have to go from a room where you see a heart-wrenching code take place. Somebody has lost a life. Family is crying. And you, you know, do what you can, hug who you can. And then you've got to go into your fresh admit, somebody who's angry at you because they haven't gotten, like, a meal tray yet. And you want to say, what the 
fuck is wrong with you? Somebody just died next door. Did you not see the crash cart reeling by and hear the shouts? But those, but that's not, you can't do that to them. You know, their, their experience is individual to them in the hospital. And so you just have to compartmentalize because it's part of your job. But then eventually, you know, you run out of space in your head for all the boxes. The, I think about, um, you know, historically the place of nurses and, and popular culture and society. I mean, it's totally feminized. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in the seventies and eighties, there was no, no, no female doctors and no male nurses. I mean, it was completely, you know, and, and the sort of place for women who wanted to be professionals in those days. And I, and I guess looking at the statistics and large part still today mm-hmm. is in sort of care professions, care oriented professions, particularly teaching and, and nursing. And those are the people that are getting crushed at this sort of moment, the greatest moment of societal stress in all of our lifetimes. It's these professions that are supposed, supposedly feminized, mm-hmm. paid less, marginalized. Yeah. They're yeah. the ones that are getting smashed day in and day out. I, yeah. I don't know how to say that. I'm not trying to be ironic. There's no, there's no, no irony in it. It's just a nightmare. We've just, we, we all realize it, right? And that, that the thing is, and this happens probably in every profession where you're a professional, you know, and, and, um, a female is that everybody assumes they can do your job and do it better than you because you're a girl. So, um, everybody, you know, like anytime the teachers, union wants more money, everyone's well, anybody can be a teacher. And the same thing is like when, you know, when the hospitals happen, they're just like, oh yeah, just, you know, crank the ICU nurse crank and like pump some more out. And actually people kept, um, up this inane analogy where they were like, well, remember in world war two when women like Rosie, the riveter. And I was like, but we're not pounding rivets in the hospital. We are flying the goddamn planes. So you can't, that's, that's a crap analogy. You know, anybody can probably be trained to pound a rivet, but to, to fly the human body takes years of training and experience. And, and so it's really frustrating because you and I realize what a finite resource nurses are and how tragic it is that we're losing so many of them right now. Well, you were a guest on NPR's program at WBUR on point, which is a great program. And, and you said there, if you offered every healthcare worker in America a job that paid equivalently well as their job that they currently have, they would leave. Absolutely. I, I pretty much stand by that. I think there's like a rogue 5% of like maybe PD nurses that are happy with their careers right now. But the rest of us would be like, sign me up, take me away from this. And that's, and that's why so many nurses who can leave are leaving. But what what is it? Is it the is it the death and that just not used to dealing with so much of it? Is it the disrespect? Is it the madman who used to be at the controls that we still have to hear so much about? <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's a combination of a lot of things, and it's probably very highly dependent on what area of the country that you live in, right? You know, I mean, there's definitely still gaslighting going on about the causes of COVID and like who's dying of COVID and like how real the numbers are in places like Florida. Um, the problem is now that it's like somebody has tapped the bottom of the hourglass and the sand is pouring out. And I, I don't know how to stop that because so many people have left 
to save themselves. Everybody who could like be a stay at home mom or had a partner, had a good job or could finagle another career or go back to school to become like a CRNA or a nurse practitioner or retire early or get whatever elective surgery they can. I, I imagine ortho has been incredibly busy just based on the number of knee and hip replacements happening with coworkers at my hospital, because then you get like three to four months off to recover, you know? Um, and people just don't want to be at work, need the break and want to be away from bedside. But every time a nurse leaves, that puts more strain on the remaining nurses, right? And so, you know, you work 12 hours without a break. That's brutal. And there's definitely people working 16s without a break. That's even worse. Morale gets low. And, and the thing is, and I think Ed made a really good point of this in his article in The Atlantic, that um, it's just we can't provide the level of care that we're accustomed to and that we desire to provide, right? None of us became nurses because we wanted to do a shitty job. And so when you're pressed by your assignment because you're given more patients than you can reasonably handle, um, you're not going to want to keep working. I don't think people realize how scary it is to be a nurse sometimes because people don't necessarily realize what nurses do, but we are in charge of people's lives, right? The doctors don't look at the monitors. The doctors don't see you. They don't smell you. They don't touch you, especially when you have COVID. They're not going into that room. So it's us who is telling them what's happening with you. We're the people who have our fingers on your pulse, literally, but also figuratively. And so um, when we feel that we can't do our job well, and we have to go home and question the decisions that we made because we weren't adequately supported, um, it just really turns you off the profession because nobody wants to lose their license just legally, but emotionally, no one wants to go home from the hospital thinking, I did a bad job today, you know, because that's, that's not what we signed up. Nobody signed up to be a half-ass nurse, so... Just want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Cassie Alexander today, the author of Year of the Nurse. And uh, let me ask you also, Cassie, I meant to ask you earlier, just about the sort of physical preparation. We talked about the mental preparation, but physical preparation to return to the job in November. What did you, I mean, I can't begin to imagine a day in my life, the most strenuous thing I do is mute and unmute my microphone on COVID calls. So what do you, what did you have to do? So, so full disclosure, I had three months off with my PTSD and then I had the world's best time broken ankle. So then I had three months off with my ankle because oh. I required surgery and right. I needed to recover from that. But it was a blessing in disguise because it did get me more time off. But the second my ankle became well enough I had to start hopping on my rowing machine and start rowing because um, if there's anything wrong with your body, being a nurse will tweak it. I was telling somebody the other day that, um, you know, nursing is intellectually rigorous, emotionally exhausting and physically laborious. And I think a lot of people, too, don't realize how much bending and squatting and lifting and pulling and pushing and turning and everything you have to do to um, not all rooms have lifts. And even when you're just like reaching up to hang like your 20th, 30th IV bag of the day, 
Um, and also too, not all of us are young. Like, you know, I'm in my forties and there's people who are bedside nurses in their fifties and even older. It, it's, it's brutal on your body and it wears you down and people get hurt a lot in nursing. It's, even it's it, it hovers that line between like white collar and blue collar work. I feel like physically it's a blue collar job for your body. So let's talk a little bit about the support that you've either been getting or not getting. And I think back to our previous conversation, you talked about how you got the title of your book, Year of the Nurse, that it had been decided previous the year before by one of, I guess, the international, one of the international nurses. World Health Organization. World Health yeah. Organization. So you described, I lo- I mean, I've told this so many times and you tell it, I should let you tell it, but you're in the break room and you look and there's a poster that says you're the nurse, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The World Health Organization just designates this year as you're the nurse and you're just in there like wanting to die, metaphorically and sometimes literally, <laughs> and you're just like, fuck you. <laughs> Somebody decided that like in the summer of 2019 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was to celebrate, I think, um, the 200th, birthday of Florence Nightingale, you know, I'm sure it made sense when they picked it, but it just wound up being like the height of irony to be seeing that in the break room every day. And I'm sure it was in break rooms all across America. So, so um, it's a year of the nurse. So how well have the professional organizations done? So very poorly. Um, gosh. Yeah. So the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, which is an organization that I belong to, recently put out an op-ed that was essentially, um, is it burnout or is it menopause? Which is just like, oh my God. (laughs) Millions of nurses simultaneously have experienced menopause across America? (laughs) Yeah, even as early as their 20s. Yeah, it's amazing Amazing. how that happens. Extraordinary. you know, talk about being in a feminized profession. Like nobody rolls into Silicon Valley in like some think tank that's like had a bunch of bad stock moves, and they're like, "Who here is low on testosterone?" I was going to say, does yeah. that. everyone experiencing ED all at once? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's just the height of oh, such bullshit. And then I was hopping back in my Twitter to make sure I got this one right too. In October. And the American Association of Nurses, which is another professional organization, I actually forget if I belong to or not, they um, they combined with Waterpick to like promote their shower heads. And they were just like, had a rough day at work? You should buy one of these shower heads. And they actually had some nurse influencers on Instagram and TikTok be all like, when I get home from work, this is the Come shower on. head I use. And all I could think of was like, what? Like, what? what is that? How is that a thing? And, um, and so they got ratioed so hard on Twitter, they deleted their tweet and, and almost all those nurse influencers like canceled all their stuff. But um, there's enough echoes on the internet that um that i that that yeah that's i could send you things from instagram that people screenshot that's embarrassing for everyone involved you know and I mean, so yeah so to sum up it's farce. nobody cares it's become farce. <laughs> to, to sum up and I, I think the part of the problem is nobody has a solution right you know and that's kind of like nobody knows how to fix the problem to some degree nobody will admit that there's a problem with all the nurses leaving but maybe we can talk about that in a second but there's also not a good way to fix it that's that's cheap um, or that doesn't require perhaps a national response. And so th- they just keep throwing like spaghetti at the wall, trying to see what sticks, but nothing, nothing ever will because, you know, you, you want job satisfaction, you want adequate pay, you want safe working conditions. And until those things can be perpetually provided for us, we're going to leave. 
So there was something making the rounds in social media. It was um, there's a physician who has a kind of I guess he's a tick he's on TikTok, but he does these things where he he plays two characters. He t- says yeah. something and then he's dead. He's quite forget his name. Just guy. Yeah, and he's yeah. funny. Yeah. But and he did one with Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General. I saw that. And, yeah. Yeah, and I mean this. The, this, I watched it. You'll maybe you'll appreciate. It. I watched this, and the first thing I thought was, "Oh, I wonder if Cassie saw this," because it oh, was yeah. like, because <laughs> I think it came from the right place, and it's like it's the sort of Trump administration would have had something that nobody from no yeah. Surgeon General would have been allowed yeah. to, to do that. They would have disappeared them. But it was so, <laughs> and with great respect for Vivek Murthy and the difficulty of his job, to me it was very tone deaf to say. Yeah. We we just want everybody to feel supported and and um, yeah and and loved yeah. and I'm like, where's the money? Exactly. Like, like how are the they time actually, off? How are they actually going to do that? And and I think that's part of the the ongoing trauma that we're feeling is that unless you go and you know admit that you have PTSD and sob for three weeks or get a hip replaced, you can't escape working at bedside. You know, if you need that money, you're trapped. And and so yeah, for them to just say you know have another resiliency training course, essentially, that, that, that doesn't do anyone any good. And <clears throat> I, I know we kind of talked, I'm going to segue because I know we talked a little bit about this um, in messages, but um, the need to replenish our ranks is so high right now, um, but there's no infrastructure for it. So like the state of New York recently said that they're going to provide a thousand tuition for healthcare work for nurses, you know, but where are those nurses going to go to school? It doesn't do any good to pay tuition for people it, like like student loans is not what's keeping people out of nursing. Right. The nursing schools are getting more applications than they ever have before. Oddly, I don't know why, but um <clears throat> maybe because so many of us are talking about getting all the overtime on Twitter. <laughs> um, but there's, if there's no place for those people to actually go to school, then like, what's the point of that? And then recently, I think like a, five days ago or so, the state of Kentucky, the, their Democratic governor there said that um, by 2024, they're going to be down 16,000 nurses. And so he's trying to build some infrastructure now, and it's almost 2022, and it's probably going to take at least two years of school for nurses to be a nurse. And then once those even if he magically whips up nursing school spaces for 16,000 people and they all go through and they all graduate and somehow they all get placements and they all get training, why the fuck would they stay in Kentucky? Like, what would be the point of that? You know, if you want to, assuming that the science doesn't get better, I do have hopes for this COVID pill that mm-hmm. Pfizer is working on and stuff. But, um, in a free market where nurses can move and be travelers, what we're seeing is they're going to places with better pay and better conditions, you know, or at least they're going to places with way better pay and then they're cashing out. And so they're leaving rural areas or states that are harder hit or that people are less interested in living in, you know, out in the cold. And so unless they start chaining nurses to their state somehow, I don't understand how they think any of those nurses are going to stay locally. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, do, is there, a federal strategy for nursing workforce? I, I don't, not that I've ever heard of. Hmm. So that, I mean, I would love for somebody in the Biden administration to come out tomorrow and say, let's, let's take care of this. This is a national emergency because it is, and it's only going to get worse. Um, but right now there doesn't seem to be a plan and, or even really an acknowledgement 
And I feel like I was incredibly naive at the end of Year of the Nurse when I said, you know, the very least you could do for us is cancel our student loans, et cetera. But I've come to believe that one of the reasons why the Biden administration won't cancel student loan debt is because if they did, so many people would walk away. That, that they that is kind of like this indentured servitude, you know, and I, I'm lucky I don't really have I don't have student loan debt anymore, but I know a lot of people who do because one of the problems with nursing schools having been impacted for so long with public nursing schools being so impacted is that people have had to go to private nursing schools. So when I got my nursing education like 14, 16 years ago, because it took two years, um, it cost me eight grand, which is super reasonable. But like right now you go to a private nursing school, it's costing you 40 to $60,000. So you do come out with significant debt, um, at least in California. And so, and then you're chained to your job because like you have to get rid of, you know, you have to get rid of that debt somehow. So I think that's why they won't ever free us up. Uh, there's so much in that that needs research and maybe anybody who's listening who's up on this um, on this should reach out and I'd like to talk with you on COVID calls because I think what you just described, it makes a ton of sense. People go into debt, they have to make that high higher wage, um, but they would be willing to leave that if they weren't in debt because of all the wear and tear and everything you've just been describing. It turns out not to have been worth it, the money alone, but they're stuck. Yeah. As you said, they're in some yeah. sort of a indentured servitude kind of state. And I, this broader question, I mean, you were describing the situation where nurses who are willing to travel, I guess, over the last 20 months, mm-hmm. they can they can follow the money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and. And God bless them for doing so, because otherwise we would be drowning at, at my hospital even more than we already are. But I know they're all coming from other facilities. And, and what's happening at those facilities is they have this immense brain drain going on, you know. Yeah, but but there's a lot of irony, though. I, I personally don't begrudge travelers their hustle because I know when I did critical care transport, I always went to like a new hospital every day. That stuff is scary. You're really exposing yourself and having to rely a lot on your smarts. And when you're a traveler, you know, every 13 weeks, you can be going to a different location and having to learn all those things. It's, it's incredibly hard. So, um, and it's not the lifestyle I would choose, but a lot of times those travelers are making like two to three more times than the nurses who are on regular staff. And, and so there's, we're always told by administration, the reason for paying travelers so much more is for some reason that money comes from some different pot. So it like, it, they can totally pay those travelers, but they, they don't want to give you overtime or they don't want to um, pay you more or give you like a $2 an hour raise, you know? So um, I'm, I'm not bitter and I hope it doesn't sound like I am. Again, I respect the hustle, but I know that there are places and facilities where they, there is like this animosity towards travelers because they're rolling in, making all this money and then they get to leave. And like the staff nurse is just there getting paid the same money for doing the same work and they feel trapped. Well, forgive a kind of a ill-informed question, but um, are most nurses unionized? No, 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 no. So in California, we are very unionized, but um, most places they're not. And then also, too, most places don't have ratios. So there's a law in California that um, gives us ratios, but um, in other states, somebody, gosh, this is making rounds and TikTok, and I don't know what state this is in, but um, this is like two or three days ago. It's like a facility called Ascension. And they sent a uh, letter out to all their nurses and the, the nurse, um, like, well, they did two things. Let me explain both of them to you because they're dramatic and sad. First off, they got sent Play-Doh as a Christmas gift. And the Play-Doh was for them. Thank you for helping to shape the future. Okay. 
So like, how insulting is that to get given Play-Doh? Like, don't even try, right? But I mentioned in my book too, like for nurses weeks in the past, um, during COVID, people got rocks that literally had written on them in Sharpie, nurses rock. Like, I am not kidding about either of these things. These are Googleable events. Um, but in addition to having gotten Play-Doh, those nurses also got a letter that in MedSurge said they were gonna go to one nurse to seven patients. And I want all of your listeners to imagine trying to watch seven toddlers who want to die simultaneously, like in a room full of plugs and outlets uncovered with forks in both of their hands. Like, how can you give good care at that level? You can't. And then Scott, at the very bottom of this letter, she had circled up here because she was frustrated with the ratios. But if you scroll down and, and zoom in, they actually had the gall to suggest that nurses should form childcare co-ops so that nurses who were off duty who had kids could watch the kids of other nurses so those nurses could go into the hospital and work more. Like talk about being in a feminized profession because again, in Silicon Valley, does anybody say, oh, you know, we've got to tag team out childcare today to make sure we have enough coverage for the data servers. So I'm sorry, I shouldn't have had this soda. I'm such on a tear for you, but I also have a lot of strong feelings about what's going on right now because of the mess. Well, I think that's a, once again, I mean, that's, that's the, the importance of you speaking to the media, writing your book, getting the word out there. I, and I, I guess I wonder, I mean, is there sort of a code of, is it a code of silence? Or, I mean, is there an idea that nurses just have to, I mean, that those kind of conversations happen within nursing. Yeah. And so if you're tapped into nursing, you see it, but outside everyone, well, they want us to shut up because it's an unfixable problem. And it's really depressing to hear about. It's like, you know, people get upset about like the homeless situation because they get they have empathy burnout. Right. You know, so they don't want to hear about our problems anymore. But unfortunately, our problems become your problems when you can't access the health care that you need because we've got like, you know, 50 patients in a 20 bed emergency department. And we can't take any more people in for critical care. So um, and, and then I think it's part of the like, yeah, yeah, go away, ladies. You know, you're just complaining because you're a whiner. You know, it's so much easier for people who support a Trump and who don't believe in COVID and think it's the flu to assume that we all are lying for some reason rather than to actually um, do anything about it, which is bizarre to me. But, you know, well, to be listening to you and, and thinking about moments that early in the pandemic felt really endearing, like the banging of the pots and pans in New York and the um you know the thank you notes and the yeah. you you rock you know and the pizza party and everything <laughs> yeah, else yeah you yeah know, um nobody wants those, a pizza party in the hospital again we're not third graders it's not our birthday but I'm it all sorry, feels so it, yeah i mean it's all i mean it's insulting but it's also just it just takes up time that should be spent on dollars and cents. I mean, it should really be spent on what is this worth? What should people be compensated for? And let's get to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to having spoken now that my book's gotten a slightly um, more attention given to it, thanks to like NPR and Ed and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm getting more mail from nurses who are like, oh my gosh, I forgot how bad last year really was because you didn't have time to think about how bad it was in the moment. But like, they're like, oh my gosh, you threw me back to March 2020 when we didn't have gear and I had to close your book because it gave me a panic attack. And and I'm I'm glad that my book is affecting them, but I, I don't want it. I feel sorry that 
that that's where they're going to and that it's giving them panic attacks. But at the same time, those feelings are so real and, and still in all of our hearts, you know, and in just the, to think back that we could have handled this so much better and so much differently and people could have respected the fact that we were risking our lives um, for a very long time without any vaccine on the horizon. Yeah, I, I guess the overarching theme of nurses leaving right now is in addition to not wanting to kill anybody on accident because we're being forced to do more than we possibly can physically and intellectually, um, we're tired of being taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we're just over that. If I can speak for all nursing as a whole, I think all of us are really tired of that. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Cassie Alexander, the author of Year of the Nurse. And um, with a, a few minutes left, Cassie, I just wanted to, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, the holidays are here, as you said, sort of this whole year of COVID instead of just, you know, nine months for Americans. Of COVID, I noticed you've got some sort of holiday uh, gear <laughs> on. Our pajamas. It's a sweater that says "Slay the Patriarchy." Since this is my only holiday thing, I ha think I've got on the books, Scott. <laughs> okay, I just I just made sure made sure I wanted to highlight that, and I, I guess I wanted to. I mean, you're a you're a writer. Uh, I mean, you're you you write romance and fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, you know, again, and I kind of asked you this last time, but I'm sort of curious again about the relationship between your your work life, you know, what happens there, and then what happens when you sit down to create worlds. Um, what I enjoy about my fiction, particularly, is that it's a world that I can control and create entirely. And you know, since I write romances, I know it's going to have a happy ending because that's by definition what a romance is. It has a happy ending. And, um, and I think in a way we were talking a little bit prior to this taping about stuff, Scott, and I think I figured out the answer to one of your questions is that, um, it was easy for me to be so honest when I wrote Year of the Nurse. This is going to sound weird, but listeners hang with me. Um, because I'm so used to just writing sex scenes or whatever, I have worn down whatever filter I probably should have in place as perhaps this podcast shows. And once you're like, oh God, the entire nation of Germany is going to read a sex scene of mine, you don't have any shame left. And that really helped me to expose myself in the year of the nurse. I was like, you wanna see what it was like to be a nurse? Here you go. Um, and, and so that's kind of like how I accessed the parts of me that needed to write that book was by not being scared of um, talking about hard things and showing off um, deep truths. Um, but uh, I also think, too, that uh, writing romance is very healing in a lot of ways, just the same for the same reason that reading it is. And that's why it's such a fabulously popular genre, despite the fact that it's sneered on by so many, because, again, it's feminized, you know, so everybody thinks they're better than reading Daniel Steele, but she like makes a bajillion dollars. Um, <clears throat> and because it, um, it brings joy to people and joy is something that's sorely needed right now in this moment. And I think anything that makes you happy, you should absolutely 100% go for it right now because, you know, life is definitely fleeting as we've all seen. So that's one of the reasons why I enjoy writing romance because um, the, the plots make me happy. And I know that when I put my books out, they make other people happy. And it's a way of me kind of putting out joy into the world that I might not be able to do otherwise. I watch a lot of K-drama. 
<laughs> my co-author loves K-drama. I'm just going to cop to that right now. And ever since I moved to South Korea, I've been watching it. And lots of different ones, the historical ones and the contemporary ones. And so what you said, um, you know, finding some alternative space, it's like our world, but there's no COVID in that world. Yeah, yeah, they have their know. own stresses and concerns, and I like to worry about them. And I find myself sometimes throughout the day worrying about those characters and not worrying about, I don't know how to say this, it sounds kind of strange, but it's like a, it's parking some emotional, there's some emotional energy that goes into that, which is somehow that's okay. It's not as exhausting as the news feed. Yeah, no, a uh, hundred million percent. It's it's funny because when my, um, I also sometimes write with a co-author and when we were putting books out at the beginning of 2020, I still needed to, um, we still needed to write the last book in the series. And I was like, I have a plot moment here where I can just like skip two years and pretend COVID happened. And she was like, don't do that. Nobody wants to read about that fiction and and that's that's true unfortunately for for better or worse right everybody says there's like a dearth of information about the 1918 flu and you probably as a disaster historian know far more about that than i do but i think in fiction people definitely want the escapism and there's nothing wrong with that i'm yeah escapism has so much value in dark times um i wanted to go go back to and think with you a little bit about pre-COVID, like when you find yourself trying to channel sometimes, not in the, not in fiction, but in your own life, where you put yourself in a better, better time and place. I've been thinking about this lately because yeah. my grandparent, my grandparents have been on my mind a lot. Oh, it's always the holiday time, but also with COVID. And I'm, there's these sort of moments I can, places I can go back to where <clears> there's of course, I guess we could have been vaporized by nuclear weapons in the moment, but I, I wasn't worried about that, and there was no COVID. And I, I watched the childhood my kids are having right now, this sort of locked lockdown childhood, and I go back to times when I would just go out and play all day and just be outdoors all day long, you know, in Texas in the summertime. It was like an 18-hour day, you know, spent outdoors. I, I, I don't know. Do, do you go somewhere in your mind? Yeah, for sure. R just one real fast fiction tie-in. I, I, I sent my a different book to my co-author and I kind of skipped over the details on the coffee scene and she was like, no, Cassie, people super miss coffee shops right now. Go into that. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, they want to hear the, the spinning spoon and the tinkling of ice. So I was like, all right, I can do that. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, you know, I'm sure your phone does this too, or maybe Facebook if you have it, where it's like three years ago, you were here and five years ago, you were here. And most recently, uh, my husband and I took a trip to Italy four years ago for two weeks. And so it's just been showing me like this highlight reel of like this fantastic trip we took together. And, you know, it is bittersweet because I don't know if we're ever going to get to travel internationally again anytime soon. I don't know. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I am very, very wistful. I think that's the best word. Just super wistful for what I used to have. So just a couple of minutes left. I want to, well, thanks for sharing that. And, and, um, I, w I wonder, you know, as you go into this next year, um, I don't know. I don't want to ask you to write another book. Writing one was hard <laughs> enough, but like, but I know you wrote an, I know you wrote an article, um, for a journal sharing some of your, you know, experiences with PTSD and nursing. I mean, are you planning to engage, continue to engage more in the sort of public? platform or have you done what said what you wanted to say and and you're done with that now 
it's it's so tough because half of me wants to be done with it. Like I don't want to be I don't want to be the nurse who had PTSD because of COVID for forever, right? I don't I don't I don't want that to be my brand, right? I want I want like people to read my vampire and werewolf novels. I don't want them to like be all like this is the depressed nurse who almost killed herself. But um <clears throat> at, at the same time, though, until anybody else takes up that mantle or the nation starts to take us and our needs seriously, I'm in a uniquely good position to talk about it. And I would be remiss to not use what little platform I have to try to make life better for all nurses right now. So, um, you know, so that's why anytime anybody asks me to be on a podcast or anything, you know, I, or write anything for them, I almost always say yes, because not because I want the exposure, but I just want people to feel other people like me to feel less alone. Have nursing students reached out to you? Yeah, I actually just did a, um, <coughs> a video like uh, last week with a nursing professor, um, Lawana. Um, I, I'm so sorry, Lawana, I forget your last name, but she's a professor at Regis College in Boston. And mm. Um, and she's going to show it to, you know, put it on their website there. And so, and she had read, you know, Year of the Nurse. So we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I have all sorts of people following me on Twitter and in regards to nursing stuff. And um, yeah. Oh, oh, yes. Anytime anybody asks me if they should go into nursing school, they say no. But if I say no, but if they're already in nursing school, I'm very nice to them because we do need new nurses and don't want to scare everybody off. But at the same time, if you have like another professional choice or calling that you can go into, why not do that? It's probably easier. At the top of the program, I read the story from Wales of the woman who was there and the nurses cared for her and her husband was in ICU for two months and then she decided to to become a nurse. And, and I didn't choose that because it was saccharine. I was curious what your reaction would would be to it. It made me just think what the difference may be between the National Health Service in Britain and, and what's been happening in the US. I don't know how to account for it, but I wonder what you thought about, about that story. I, I thought it was incredibly sweet, you know, and and it, when I was in a burn nurse, <laughs> we would um, have sometimes our patients there for months while they were doing like really um, long recoveries from their injuries. You know, they'd need multiple skin grafts, all sorts of physical therapy, and you really got to know them. And they often had a family member with them who was fantastic. And we would always say, like, go to nursing school. You know, you have a calling for this. If you can help us with burn care, you can pretty much do anything. So, you know, come and be like us. Um, and unfortunately, it never took. So it's kind of sweet and bittersweet and sad to see that it did happen in this this one case. Um, yeah, but like I said, I wouldn't, um, in, unless you are absolutely 100% that nursing is your calling right now, I, I wouldn't recommend it as a profession. And and here's why too, Scott, because I was talking to that professor um, of nurse at a nursing college, and she was saying too that most of their nurses there want to immediately go on to higher education. So they want to go straight from nursing to be nurse practitioners. And we do need more mm -hmm. nurse practitioners, right? Because there's also an upcoming doctor shortage and um, nurse practitioners can kind of fill in the gaps where we don't have a lot of general practice people. Um, because when by the time you go into all that debt, you need to specialize to pay for it. So we have, you know, doctors becoming nephrologists and neurologists and stuff, but not necessarily doing GP work. <clears throat> but um but yeah, so not that many people, though, it sounds like are going to nursing school to just become bedside nurses. And and that's 
sad and it's scary. And then um, I'll toss this out there too, just because we're talking about profession things. I also have a fear that at some point in time, America is going to steal nurses from other countries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because when I started off as a nurse, at least in California, so many of my coworkers were Filipina and they were they're They're not were, they are amazing. All I'm, I have so many friends amongst my old coworkers. They're fantastic nurses, but they, they all, they're just this brain drain. You know, we just took all these nurses from their country. And so I fear that as our nursing deficit goes on and our wages go up, that if we ever do loosen our borders and um, then we're just going to like siphon off all the nurses from other places that need nurses and, and while that's going to be profitable for them, it's not super fair from the country that they live in. I think that concern must, and that's, I think, been observed in the UK as well. And I wonder, you know, those restrictions, those um, Trump era restrictions, if, if and when they are relaxed, I think you will see, I think you will see exactly that. I mean, you've, yeah. you've shined, you've shined a light today on, um, I didn't, no, we were going to necessarily talk about this. I'm so glad we did because you shine your light on this sort of emerging. It's the professional side, the sort of pipeline side, if you will, the workforce side of the trauma story that you're telling. I mean, it's, it's trauma at an individual level, but it's trauma at a sort of professional level nationally and internationally as well. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, you know, I don't know what more people need to see. This has been my thing for months now. Like, what more do you need to see to know that every system is broken? I I don't know, you know, and, and here we are today, you know, with Manton standing in the way of that hugely important bill. I I I don't know. I if a coal mine would talk, its voice would sound like Joe Manchin. I mean, that's, that's my, he's just a climate change. He can blame it on whatever he wants to. It's just, you're right. So it's a structural yeah. thing, right? It's like yeah, 19th yeah. the 19th, the ghost of the 19th century, like haunting yeah. us. Yeah. I, I, if I, if I knew whatever the key was, I would be twisting it with all my heart and might. But yeah. like right now I know that I don't possess it and it's not my job to fix it. I feel like too, I've made this comparison before on Twitter. <clears throat> um, we can't use personal responsibility to fix a systemic problem, you know? So like, it was really great a couple of years ago, everyone's like, oh, don't use plastic straws anymore. But like the actual solution to climate change might be finding Exxon, you know? It's not gonna be help. I mean, we're gonna do some good by like not using plastic straws, but still the responsibility really lies with the corporations and the governments. And that's part of the problem with COVID response is because it has been, it's all been thrust on us. You have to mitigate your own um, <coughs> risk assessment and like how dangerous it is where you live. And you have to know statistics and you have to be able to do the math and figure out how much risk you're willing to take and how much you love your grandparents and stuff. And it shouldn't be like that. There should just be, and I understand because of states' rights, it's difficult for them to do anything at the federal level, but they need to be, <coughs> to say, we are mandating masks. We are mandating, you know, if you have a COVID exposure, you have two weeks off. We are mandating all these things. And that would take it all from personal responsibility and fix it, have the possibility of fixing it systemically in a way that we can't manage ourselves. Just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls 
uh, live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. This is a week heading up to the holidays. I thought I would do no COVID calls this week, and I'm ending up doing four um, because I wanted <laughs> there's some folks I just really wanted to talk to at the end of the year. And um, so please join me on uh, Wednesday. I have three back-to-back, 6.30 p.m. I'll be talking to Kristen Urquiza, the founder of Marked by COVID, and Pamela Swan Addison, who's been on before and talked about her husband, who was a healthcare worker who died early in the pandemic. I'll be talking uh, a little bit later to Esther Chernock, uh, the epidemiologist from Drexel University. And then at 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday, I'll be talking to writer John Mualem um, about anything John wants to talk about. And this should be a great conversation. And Cassie, I was just so eager to get you back on. It was one of the most uh, enlightening chats I had in 2021. And uh, I don't quite know how to thank you for what you're doing, just to say it's noticed and and I'm uh, going to start describing you as a vampire and werewolf writer <laughs> who also occasionally writes about nursing stress, Cassie Alexander. I think that's the best way to describe you, right? Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm and again, I'm I'm actually re-releasing like all of my back with books. Then we talked briefly about how much I've been writing recently, but it's not all for wholesome reason. It's also because I don't want to be a nurse anymore. And so if my books become magically successful and I can step away from bedside, I would do that a hundred percent. What title should we start with? Oh my gosh. You're so sweet. Um, I have a release coming out in January called Blood of the Pack, which is basically like a super sexy version of Sons of Anarchy with Vampires and Werewolves in Las Vegas at an all-night tattoo parlor. So, <laughs> it's, it's already been greenlit as a film, I think. They're, they're just that description would get you greenlit, I think. Blood of the Pack. It's coming yeah. out. Okay. In January cool. 5th. January 5th. So that's the beginning right. of like a six-book series I'm going to release next year. All right, everybody go and get um, pre-order Blood of the Pack and then also order Year of the Nurse while you're at it. <laughs> Cassie Alexander, happy holidays. Thanks so much for this time. Thanks, Scott. I always enjoy my time with you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.